excited to be here. We are the Pre-Rail Flight Podcast, or at least three-fifths of the Pre-Rail Flight Podcast. We are so excited to be here in Delaware um, for a very special occasion, for a very special weekend, which is the Pre-Rail Flight Weekend. And we are joined by a fabulous live audience. So, uh, applaud yourselves. That felt pretty good, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, shall we start with some introductions? Well, before I start with introductions, um, just to let you know about the recording equipment going on, we do have uh, this microphone in front of us, which will is currently recording the podcast um, as we speak. And once we are done with the podcast, we will have microphones going around um, the audience. So if you have any questions to ask us, whether it be about the podcast or be about the exhibition or anything that has happened over this weekend, then you have the opportunity to do that. Um, so yeah, should we start with some introductions? Uh, Sherry. Hi everyone, I am Sherry Schrader. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm a member of not only the podcast, but the Pre-Raphaelite Society and the Pre-Raphaelite Postgraduate Network. I um, help um, help with the social media uh, for the society and that is about it. I'm going to pass it back. Uh, so hi everyone, my name is Alex. Uh, I am another member of the podcast team, else I would not be sitting here. Um, I am also a member of the team that looks at the Graduate Network Strand, which is a very new and upcoming thing uh, in collaboration with the pre Society, which is very exciting. Uh, stay tuned, by the way, because we've got plenty planned for that. Um, aside from that, I am a PhD student uh, currently looking into pre women um, and their collaborative practice, uh, be it political, domestic, um, or creative. <laughs> Hello everyone, um, I'm Hannah. I just want to first address the elephant in the room, or the fanny cornforth in the room. Um, I'm wearing these sunglasses not because I think I'm, you know, amazing, but um, just because I suffer with uh, migraines and these are just meant to help. So apologies that I'm wearing them, but it's not because I think I'm something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm Hannah, I'm a freelance curator and researcher. Um, my passion for the Graphlites came from, I grew up right next to Whittock Manor in Wolverhampton, which have lent some amazing pieces that I've seen here. Um, and while I was working at Whittock, I curated an exhibition about Elizabeth Siddle's work called Beyond Ophelia, and also um, an exhibition about Evelyn and William de Morgan with the de Morgan Foundation called Look Beneath the Luster, Sarah Hardy, <laughs> the curator and director who I um, co-curated with this here, who's wonderful. Um, and yeah, and then for the Graphlite Society, I um, obviously one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and I also lead Katya on social media, so I'm kind of obsessed with Instagram, so please do join, our, um, join us on Instagram if you aren't already. We've just hit uh, 67,000, which is pretty cool, so thank you for everyone. It's a really um, wonderful community, and it's great to interact, so yeah. And just want to say as well, on behalf of all of us, thanks so much, Sophie, for hosting us, and this weekend has been incredible so far, and for all the work you've put into it, as well as the exhibition, it's just amazing, so thank you. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you all here. We're now, this is the last scheduled event of the Pre-Raphaelite weekend before our Pre-Raphaelite promenade, which is later this evening. And I think this is a really nice opportunity to gather the whole group together to reflect 
on this time we've spent together and also the Rossetti's exhibition at Delaware, Delaware's permanent collection of Preraculite art, and to welcome these three titans of the Preraculite Society podcast team, which has done tremendous work in reaching people around the world through this new medium or recent, recently uh, you know, prolific medium of podcasting. And I think that many of us here found out about the Preraculite Weekend through the podcast team and through the Preraculite Society social media team. I know that many folks that I've spoken to from Colorado, from Michigan, came this to this weekend because they saw it advertised on social media and the Preraculite Society has done incredible work to get the word out over the past few years. And you, you've reached 67,000 followers in less than a year and a half, haven't you? It's, it's incredible that there are so many people now around the world connected around this movement, this British art movement that has been rather niche up until this moment. And so I know that Alex has prepared some questions for us to reflect on what it means to have a large exhibition co-organized with the Tate here at the Delaware Art Museum and what can the after effects of this gathering be for mm -hmm. our field. So I'll turn it over to you, Alex. Yeah, and just to add to that about um, you know the impact that social media has had on uh, knowledge and appreciation of the Pre-Raphaelite movement, we have really seen a revival of interest as of late um, in Pre-Raphaelitism and exploring not only just the art but different mediums and different artists, more obscure names are you know, coming into contact by the day, um, which is, is what, we, it's what we do, it's the reason why we do it. Um, and a contribution to what the podcast is making, we have listeners from every single continent in the world and we had no idea that we would be reaching that far. Um, you know, it's, it's just been more so, just over a year since we set the whole podcast up. It was last October, and we've reached every single continent um, with listeners from Sri Lanka, uh, listeners from Peru, uh, places that I, you know, neither of us would ever have even dreamed of being able to reach, uh, which is an absolute privilege, I think. Um, so. Yeah, on that emotional note, let's go on to this really special weekend and the exhibition. And I really want to start talking about, um, the, you know, the, the conversion from Tate uh, to the exhibition that we have here and the differences and the similarities and what our listeners who cannot be here for this weekend, um, what, what kind of works do we have on display and in what ways is this different to the way that the Tate uh, depicted the same exhibition, and that's what I wanted to start with, really. Well, this is one of my favorite topics, so it's because what, I, it's what I've been thinking about for the past year and a half was how to translate an exhibition from a behemoth institution like the Tate into a much smaller regional museum like the Delaware Art Museum. Of course, we have incredible holdings of Preraphaelite art, you know, I, I, I know I don't have to say it, but just to, to get it on record in this podcast, largest collection of pre-Raphaelite art outside <laughs> of the UK, it is almost a meme at this point, but um, 
despite having this collection that attracts people from all over the world, what would it be like to have a blockbuster show of works primarily from the United Kingdom in our much smaller scale galleries? And so to just paint a picture of what the Tate galleries look like for those of you who didn't have a chance to see the show, the exhibition at Tate was in the Lindbury Galleries. And that's a series of nine rooms uh, off of their Manton entrance. And so this, these are ground floor galleries and you enter the galleries one way, and then you go through all nine discrete rooms, and you exit through the last room. So this means that unless you're gonna cut the galleries down the middle and force people to turn around and go back out the way they came, you have to use all of that space. And so the Tate did a tremendous job at filling their nine galleries with works that ranged from Rossetti's early teenage years and then beyond the death of this generation of the Rossetti's. They ended uh, with the Ken Russell film and some lovely comic books by Barry Windsor Smith. This was looking at the legacy in the 20th century in uh, different media of the Rossetti's and the Pre-Raphaelites. And so, as all of you know who've been here in Delaware, even for five minutes, our special exhibition gallery is architecturally very different from the Lindbury Galleries at Tate. It is one large room with movable walls. And so the Tate's show was able to have very discrete sections in their exhibition where we're codified and bounded by the room. And I wasn't gonna be able to do that here. And so I had to think about ways to reduce a nine section show because of the nine rooms to a show that would make sense with sort of porous section divisions because we weren't going to get that architectural division moving from one area of the show to the next. And so what I did was I reduced the number of sections to five and I shifted the, some of the early narrative of the show uh, to focus more specifically on this long creative exchange between Gabriel and Elizabeth Siddle. So one of the sections that I removed in order to do that was a, a lovely section at Tate that was on the formation of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, showed some works by Millet, William Holman Hunt, and really provided that origin story of when the seven members of the Brotherhood come together and write their manifesto, as it were, in the germ, and start exhibiting together using the initials PRV. And so that was actually one of the easy things for me to eliminate and not feel just sort of like wrenching, like I was cutting, you know, omitting one of my own children. It was, <laughs> I could handle it because the Delaware Art Museum has its permanent collection galleries in which the Pre-Raphaelite story is already told. And so people who come to the Delaware Art Museum 
Of course we want and we hope to encourage people to come here to see the Pre-Raphaelites and to learn about the Pre-Raphaelites for the first time, and we hope that our permanent galleries do that. But I also felt like in a small museum where there's actually not that much distance between those permanent galleries and our special exhibition space that I didn't need to repeat that story in the exhibition. And so you'll see that I don't have in this show those paintings by John Everett Millay and William Holman Hunt. I keep the narrative tightly on the Rossettis themselves during that period and I use the painting the Annunciation and the issues of the germ to sort of tell the origin story of the Pre-Raphaelites in a succinct way to then allow me to give lots of space for what I felt was one of the most groundbreaking contributions of this exhibition among my scholars, like Glenda Yude, uh, this relationship between Elizabeth Siddle and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and to just basically give over almost 50% of the square footage of the gallery to putting those works side by side. So that is how I perceive one of my major changes to the show. I would love, I know Hannah and Alex, you saw the show at Tate, mm -hmm. and now you've seen it here. Do you have any re immediate reactions to whether the show feels different in a different space or how the rearrangement of material works in Delaware. Yeah, um, I mean, both exhibitions, they are, they, at the end of the day, the, the works that are on display in both exhibitions, be it in London or be it in Delaware, both exhibitions were groundbreaking and brilliant and brilliantly laid out. Um, and it really did encapsulate the spirit of the Rossettis and, you know, that their, their, I don't want to sound cliche, but their journey from, you know, just a plucky group of young artists and their evolution into, you know, the professional artists that we love. Um, I think the key difference uh, that, you know, from, from the Tate, and I, I know Hannah will agree, and the first room that you walked in at the Tate exhibition, um, you had a lot of, uh, like, an immersive experience with the sound of Christina Rossetti's poetry, um, whereas with Delaware, I think it's a hell of a lot more intimate, um, the setting here in Delaware, and I, in a way, I, and I'm not saying this to the tape, but I actually prefer that in a way because it really does help you appreciate that work that little bit more. I mean, I absolutely love the tape exhibition, but the intimacy um, of, of the Delaware exhibition and the experience that we have had this week in taking every single piece of work in, um, I think I have personally had it on a hell of a lot more of an intimate level. Um, I think Hannah, do, do you agree? <laughs> Yeah, I do. I really like the hyper-focus on Rossetti and Siddle and comparing their artworks. It was wonderful to see Sister Helen Siddle's next to Rossetti's and see the inspiration on Rossetti, but also the difference, the kind of sensuousness that Rosetti, uh, Dante brings in that Elizabeth Siddle really focuses on how tormented um, Sister Helen is. And like seeing Woeful Victory, which is uh, Siddle that's part of the Delaware collection, it was just, I just really love the hyper-focus on as you said, Sophie, the interrelationship between these two as people and as artists and as poets and just how they kind of really inspire each other. So, yeah, I think it's amazing. And to, to respond to what Hannah, excuse me, what Alex said about how the Tate incorporated 
sound and poetry recording into the space. This was, I, you know, I didn't have to wrestle with this because it just wasn't possibility for us in this big open space. We couldn't have those lovely sound showers descending from the ceiling. Our, we just, the acoustics weren't going to work. And so I had to think early on about how I wanted to incorporate Christina Rossetti's own voice into the exhibition because that was a central conceit of the exhibition as it was conceived by Carol Jacoby and James Finch at the Tate. And I, you, with, if you removed it entirely, then it really becomes a show about Dante Gabriel Rossetti because his works are on the wall. And so I really didn't want to lose those, particularly because I thought that Diana Quick's recording of them was so beautifully done. And so what I did instead, which you probably all saw in the show, was I made a listening corner. And I put it near Goblin Market, where that's displayed, and then this case that we have of material largely from the Mark Samuels Leisner Collection at the University of Delaware Library and our own Samuel and Mary Bancroft Archive and Manuscript Collection here at the Delaware Art Museum. And so that case tells the story of Christina's publishing process over the course of many decades. And there are, it's filled with first editions, photographs of her, and then you have Goblin Market on the wall next to Found, and then sort of triangulating with the Found Goblin Market and the, the case is the audio recording. And I had hoped, and you know, of course it's up to the visitor to let us know whether or not it was successful, but that poetry nook, that recording, the listening opportunity would give people a respite in an otherwise large exhibition that we don't want people to rush through, we want people to take their time and to hear it take about 10 minutes to listen to all of the poetry straight through, which is a totally different experience than going through the Tate show and listening to it uh, just you know, one excerpt at a time. I'll be interested, you know, we've only been open three weeks, and so I'll be interested to see what the impact of that necessary curatorial change is on the viewer experience of learning about Christina Rossetti in this exhibition. I did just want to add a point um, to the listeners who, again, who are not in the audience today. We have had the privilege of viewing some really beautiful works, uh, thanks to Mark Samuels Lasner, and uh, you know, many of us have had the privilege of being able to see those works in person, um, which I personally, um, you know, I'm really, really thankful for because a lot of the works I didn't really know that much about. Um, and hearing the anecdotes that Mark Samuels Lasner um, has, just his fountain of knowledge of all of the works that he has in his collection, um, it has been a real pleasure to be able to witness in person and listen to the genius Mark Samuels Lasner. And, and I think that incorporated with the, you know, the sheer effort that has gone into the Delaware Art Museum's response to the Rossettis has really heightened my personal experience in viewing this exhibition. Um, and I think it's been really, really special. Um, I did want to talk about 
what it means for you as the curator, because it's all great appreciating the finished article, the finished product, which we have all had the pleasure of seeing um, this past week or so. Um, but I want to talk about the processes for Sophie, because you, you have done a lot of hard work. Um, you've been a very busy, busy, busy bee. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about that process. Talk about the process of bringing the works over here, um, setting the whole thing up, and your emotional reaction to seeing your work um, out there, your efforts um, out there and appreciated, essentially. You know, it is a very unique experience to get to partner with such a world-renowned institution like the Tate. Usually when the Tate partners with an American institution, it's, it's one that is like it, like it in size and scale. And so you have the Tate partnering with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Museum of Fine Arts Houston, where Sherry works, Art Institute of Chicago, the National Gallery in Washington. But of course, this was unprecedented for them to partner with Delaware Art Museum. And the reason for that was when Carol Jacobi started working on this show, she reached out to my predecessor, Margareta Frederick, to say, you know, I'm working on this exhibition on the Rossettis, which really couldn't go off if we didn't have paintings like Lady Lilith, Veronica Veronese, Found, Namasini. And she said, well, what, would you be open to lending these works and potentially partnering with us on the exhibition to be second venue of the show, the only other venue besides Tate, and the only venue in the United States. And of course, this was a very easy yes for my colleagues here at the Delaware Art Museum, but for an institution that doesn't have tons and tons of oil paintings by Thuraculites in its coffers, it did pose a challenge because to take all of those Rossetti paintings, which are large, off of permanent view, which they were in our permanent galleries, the entire three gallery display revolved around those paintings, basically for a year, because of course they come off the wall, you know, a month before they get sent over, then they get sent over, there's the installation time, then there's the five month run at Tate, then there's the sort of month in between that they're coming back here, and then the three-month run of the show here. By the time we get them back up on the wall, it's a year. And so the thing about the Bancroft collection is that the holdings are very, very deep in works on paper, hundreds of works. But the oil paintings, while they're incredible, there are only about 80 of them, and they're all on view. So in order to put works up on the wall that would replace those holes, we had to get creative. And so we had a wonderful loan of three works by Evelyn De Morgan from Sarah Hardy and the De Morgan Foundation. And those were extended uh, after the De Morgan show was on view here last year. And then since those works have come down, we've rotated a lot of wonderful exhibition watercolors these large-scale watercolors by Vern Jones, Maurice Bartali Stillman. But so that has been, I, I bring this up, not as a total diversion to Alex's question, but just to give you the backdrop 
of what went into mounting the show. That mounting the show was, of course, a tremendous amount of work, but it meant that we had to make major changes in our permanent galleries as a result of taking these down. And that's why a lot of the times small institutions aren't able to participate in these massive retrospectives because when those paintings, those very important paintings are in a small collection, to lose it even for a few months affects you know, visitor attendance. You know, sometimes there's not staff to help move around the paintings. And so this was a, a major team effort on the part of my colleagues here at Delaware to just get those paintings removed from the wall, packed, crated, sent to London, and up at Tate. And so while all of that is happening, I work very closely with Carol Jacoby and James Finch on the narrative of the exhibition. They really came up with the story that they were telling in that show. They wrote the catalog with wonderful contributions from leading scholars. And I would consult with them on how I could best adapt that story for Delaware. And I am a curator that I don't know if it's, it's not a synesthesia, but I always have an immediate color in my mind at very, right at the beginning of starting an exhibition. And so I knew that I wanted it to be this very dark teal on the walls. And I always go for a wine. I love, I love that wine color. I've used it before. And so I, that was what came first for me. Before I started working with the designer on the architecture of the walls, I knew that I wanted those two colors because I, I just knew deep in my bones that the paintings would look beautiful on them. I picked the dark teal from the bird in La Ghirlandata that you know has that very same color. And you know, of course, not every painting that looks good on the wine color would look good on the dark teal. So we had to be very careful about which walls got which colors. And then I worked with a wonderful exhibition designer named Keith Ragone, who. Uh, has worked with the Delaware Art Museum over many years, and he knows that space back to front. He knows it better than I do because I've only been at this institution 16 months and he's done countless exhibitions in that space. So we talked about how, what the show looked like at Tate, how I was gonna make changes to the sections, how there were gonna be some works that were at Tate that weren't coming to Delaware, how there were going to be some works coming to Delaware that weren't at Tate, and how those changes of those groupings could then be felt on the wall. And so then I sent Keith all of my groupings and a sense of how I wanted things to look, and then he does mock-ups of the, every elevation. And we spent about five months going back and forth on those mock-ups until we got to what you see upstairs, and I think I am just delighted with how everything looks. I think that Rossetti was meant to be on dark teal. Like I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure if that was the color. I mean, of course, we know Leyland had dark blue walls in some areas of his house, and so it doesn't actually feel too unfaithful to the original works to put it on those colors. But I am, have been personally shocked 
to discover these old friends, some of these paintings, it's like meeting them for the first time and you see them on a different color and next to a different work, they reveal themselves to you and, and show you elements of them that you've never known before. Like for example, yesterday with the, one of the tours, we were looking at the um, second version of Found that uh, is in a private collection. And I, behind the wall, is like a, a iron fence type of thing, and I never could figure out, I just thought there were boulders in the background, and one of you, maybe raise your hand, you said, you know, they're gravestones. And I had never noticed that before, and I've looked at that picture many, many times before, and so that's what's so wonderful about bringing these groups of people together to, and to actually look at objects in real life is that you see gravestones where you never saw gravestones before. Yeah, and just to quickly add to that, um, and I think that's what the beauty of events like this really is, we've all come together and each and every one of you have had some kind of contribution to, or, or you know, or you've offered your interpretation of a piece of work, whether it be in this, in the current exhibition or whether it be in the permanent collection here at Delaware. And coming from a, you know, from my personal experience, I have viewed certain paintings in certain ways, of course, but the you know the contributions and the offerings that people have given this weekend um, have changed my own interpretation of certain works. Um, you know, for example, sharing your work with the Burne Jones uh, in the permanent collection. Uh, I'm not one who normally looks at uh, Burne Jones pieces, um, but now I am viewing these works in a completely different light uh, because of our contributions and our discussions that we have had in the gallery talks that have taken place across the weekend. Um, I just wanted to add to that. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, Sophie, was there any artworks that you wanted in the exhibition that for any reason you couldn't have, if they were truly fragile to travel internationally, or whatever reason, if there was anything that you wanted that yeah, wasn't available? Yeah, of course. That's always uh, the most difficult part of putting together an exhibition is you write these loan requests, and they're always aspirational, of course, right? It's your full wish list of if you could get every possible work for a show that you would ever want. And you know that you can't get every one because you don't always know the condition or whether the work is committed to another exhibition. And so the tape was very, very good at managing my expectations because as you probably can tell, I'm a person that gets her hopes up. <laughs> and. Um, you know, the first thing they told us right off the bat was that Rossetti's very first oil paintings, first Raphaelite painting, Girlhood of Mary Virgin, can never travel. It is too fragile. And it didn't, it couldn't travel in 2012, 2013, when pre-Raphaelite uh, um, Victorian avant-garde exhibition traveled. And it was in the show, of course, at Tate in the Rossetti's this year, and it was in the show in 2012 at Tate, but if you want to see that painting, you can only see it at the Tate. And that, of course, I respect, and you know, I want that painting to be around forever, and so I would never want to put it on a plane and, and cause it harm, but you know, when to have the Annunciation and not have that painting, people keep asking me over and over again about that red embroidery 
in the foreground of the Annunciation, and what is that? It's so weird. Why is it placed there to the side? What is that embroidery about? And I have to say, you know, imagine the girlhood of Mary Virgin right next to it. That's the before. This is later on in her life, and she was embroidering this and that work. And so we work with that. You know, curators know how to tell stories with major omissions. Uh, but that is, of course, such an important work in the Pre-Raphaelite canon. And then the other works that I was, you know, completely understood but disappointed were some of the Siddle watercolors that, you know, her really finest pieces, like Clark Saunders at the Fitzwilliam and Lady Clare, which is her private collection. Both of those works were on view in the Tate's version of the show. And the reason that they couldn't come to Delaware is because many of you know works on paper are light sensitive. And most institutions really will only allow a work on paper to be out for about 16 weeks. And then you usually need to rest it in the dark for approximately three years if you want to preserve it. Of course, private collectors, you know, those of us who have worked at home, you know, we bend those rules a little bit. Um, and it, it is a, it's sort of everybody's prerogative to treat their works how they want. But a five-month run for these rare civil works was really pushing it in itself. And so we couldn't extend that to eight months of light exposure by having them come here. And I will just say, though, to praise the tape, you know, those Rossetti watercolors that are in the exhibition, uh, all of the watercolors from the 1850s, those have seen a lot of light in their day. And so the Tate really did move heaven and earth in their conservation department to allow them to be out for eight months. And if we saw, if you look on the back, we saw when we uncrated them, that there's now a note on the back of every Tate watercolor that was in both shows that said not to be exhibited for 10 years. So those works now, because they've been out for eight months, need to rest for 10 years to just guarantee that this light exposure won't have adverse effects. So for all of you who are here in the audience, for those of you who are listening, who have seen the show either at Tate or in Delaware, this, I mean, it's not a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but you're not going to have the chance to see these works again for a very long time. So I, I hope you enjoyed them, and I hope you'll take the time to come see the show and enjoy them. That's fascinating, so thank you. Um, I actually wanted to ask everyone on the panel, because um, we're here, obviously, for the Parapolite weekend, what's been your kind of favorite thing you've done so far? So if I start with Sherry. Um. Oh, so much. Uh, this was actually one of those trips I had planned before the Rossetti show to come to Delaware when I was working on my master's thesis to work on res my research. And I was working on my master's during the pandemic. Everything shut down and all travel plans got axed the rest of my program. Um, so I've been watching what exhibitions were coming up for a while to try to Plan this trip and of course seeing an exhibition that was at the Tate and then also coming here uh, was just an ideal experience and then also having talked to Sophie and 
she had told me about the plans for this weekend and there's so many people who I've met this met in person for the first time but I've known through zoom or teams or you know email um, for the past several years so it's been just great to meet people in person meet my podcast members uh, in person and um, just to see this exhibition it's, it's so beautiful and as Sophie mentioned just knowing the the fragileness of the works on paper and to be able to see so many in one place at one time and I appreciate you know like when you hear you know that they allowed this extended period it makes it just that much more special yeah it'll be a you know it's 10 years rest but who knows when they'll pull it out again I mean that's just the minimum so um, yeah it's just been an amazing experience and getting to see all the galleries in person it it's always much different than your digital versions that we all work with so many times um, well yeah just to, just to add on to Sherry's point it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to meet Sherry <laughs> being able to see you in person for the first time when you know we communicate a lot quite mm -hmm. online and if it wasn't for the pre-referral weekend that probably wouldn't have happened and I hope someday you'll be able to see all five of us on a stage being able to have Carl, a shout out to Carl and Esther as well, who couldn't make it to this exhibition. Um, that's the dream, to have all five of us um, here, or as such a special event. Uh, to talk about my highlights from this trip, um, well, what I've loved about the general pro like the programme of this weekend is the range of activities that have been available. So we've had gallery talks, we had a little bit of a, a minibus trip after the Mark Samuels last collection. <laughs> that was, it's like a carry-on film uh, for those from the UK. That's a very English reference. <laughs> yeah, it's a very English reference. <laughs> um, also, like, we, we had like a, an art draw, like a hair drawing workshop this morning, which was new. Um, and we had some uh, very uh, choice interpretations of Lady Lilith's bright pink hair. Uh, that one was an interesting one. Um, high tea as well. Um, the gallery talks, not just in, um, you know, for the show, but we've also had the permanent collection really brought to the forefront, uh, which, by the way, uh, once the rosette is, is over and done with and packed away, that doesn't mean you shouldn't come to Delaware because the permanent collection is equally as fantastic and I heartily recommend anyone to come over and see it. Um, but my favourite event technically hasn't started yet <laughs> because it's something, <laughs> it's something that involves... Um, uh, you know, fancy dresses and uh, a promenade and I am very excited to see all of you guys later on this evening in your finest attire. Um, so yeah, that's my favourite highlight but it technically hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I can't really add much to that, it's wonderful <laughs> synopsis. Um, yeah, it's been brilliant as well seeing the exhibition here but just seeing the incredible riches that are in the Delaware collection and um, to see the permanent galleries and then earlier Sophie to show us and some of the works on paper down in the archive. Um, just to see that incredible and unfortunately Brickdale that you recently acquired is amazing. I know we're going on show at some point. Um, and also the I just love the Rossettis, Fanny Cornforth and Elephant. When I said that earlier, for anybody who doesn't know listen to the podcast, I wasn't fat shaming Fanny Cornforth. It's a very affectionate term when Rossetti painted her. Sorry, drew her um, as an elephant, she called him Rhino. 
just in case, I was like, oh, in case anybody thinks, what you're doing. <laughs> anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> I could listen to Hannah ramble in quotations all day because it's not rambling. Hannah has shared so many insights. You all, any of you who follow the Pre-Raphaelite Society Instagram page, this lovely woman sitting next to me is the one behind that. And you, I just want to publicly recognize you, Hannah, for sharing your expertise of Pre-Raphaelitism with a completely new generation of people. This, you know, we have faculty members, we had Tim Barringer here on Thursday. There are, there are professors and curators who are bringing this work to life for young people, but they're not reaching 67,000 people every single day. And that's what you're doing, and multiple times a day. And I, the endless knowledge and Rolodex of Pre-Raphaelite images that you have access to, your groupings, your themes. As a person who has a PhD in art history, it is astonishing that I get to learn new artists and new art every single day because of you, Hannah. So, thank you. Oh, as an English person, I really can't take compliments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whilst we are here, um, it, whether it be about the exhibition or be about the podcast or anything like that, we welcome all questions. Um, but just a quick note, uh, just thank you so much for coming to listen, uh, and, uh, to the viewers and the listeners and everyone, everything and everyone in between uh, to do with the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Thank you, thank you so much for your support and your, you know, your investment in us trying to bring Pre-Raphaelitism to a, a broader more on, online and you know for forthcoming generations um, so thank you so much for your support with all of that um, so yeah shall we start with the questions yeah. if anybody has any so. 
thank you guys so much um, for being here for, and for hosting this live podcast episode. Um, so my question is, from the things that you've seen, from the conversations you've had, um, and just from this new iteration of the exhibition, is there anything, you know, with the artwork or the stories that has sparked a new line of inquiry for you? or kind of a new area of interest, or something that, that's been like a revelation. Um, again, from the show, from this weekend, um, that you're now like very excited about. Repeat the question. Repeat the question. So Caroline's question, <laughs> the interest of, uh, for our listeners, is whether or not uh, we have uh, you know, had any revelations with regards to what we have seen or what we have experienced over this weekend. Okay, so I'll start with that. Um, for me, a lot of the materials that are on display, particularly the sketches to do with Barbara Bobichon and Anna Mary Howitt, I needed to see for my current research, for my thesis anyway. Um, so it has brought, um, you know, pro provided me with a fresh lens to look at those pieces. And um, being able to see them in person rather than relying on a digital image um, is always a plus. Um, but sort so of what I said earlier about the Vern Jones pieces, I I've never really appreciated his stuff. I mean, I, I always knew that he was a genius, you know, as he, as he is, he is a genius. Um, but to be able to appreciate his works in a completely different light and the textures and the different mediums that he uses, um, because, you know, Hannah and I are from Birmingham, we're from the West Midlands, Birmingham, Wolverhampton, and uh, I've, you know, I, I often come into contact with these stained glass windows at Birmingham Cathedral, um, but being able to see um, you know, different works of his, the oils, um, you know, the sketches, all sorts of things um, has really opened my eyes. For me, I think it's in the context of the collection here, and um, so really learning more about how this collection of Delaware came to be, so um, looking at Samuel Bancroft and kind of what he collected his interests, because I'm really interested in the personal and um, collecting history and kind of what he what part of the Raphaelite experience and of Rosetta that he was particularly fascinated by. And then to see, because I'm just fascinated by how the collections grow as well, to kind of see the recent acquisitions and the earlier ones in the 90s, and just to see how kind of you're steering the ship on kind of the Raphaelite collection here for the future. So I think just learning a bit more specifically about how this collection came to be, and why the things that are in it are in it. For me, as uh, I do my, I'm an independent researcher, so past year or so, I knew I needed to find a project, I've been trying to find something, and so just being here and being able to see works in person, and again, the textures and getting to see all the fine details, it, it's, I've got ideas brewing, I'm just not sure what direction I'm going to go in, but um, yeah, I'm like trying to figure out now what what part is pulling me, you know, what direction is going to pull me the strongest. For me, the most revelatory discovery that occurred throughout the course of research for this show was learning how Rossetti had a practice of having his oil paintings photographed while he was working on them. This is not something that has been discussed before. 
and it really changes our perception of what the role of photography was among the pre-Raphaelites. We know, of course we know that pre-Raphaelite works for, were photographed. We have Mansell, we have Hollier photographing works, but to have Rossetti be purposely bringing in a photographer to his studio to document a work before he's painting out a face or before he's replacing, you know, before he's extending the tacking, you know, tacking edge of the canvas, making it taller at the top as we see in Beloved, before he changes the positioning of one eye to the other. This is an artist that is thinking really carefully about his own legacy and his own working methods in a way that I think that we've not yet deeply thought about with regards to the Pre-Raphaelites and their use of photography in the course of painting. So I will just say that one thing that came out of this, we lent our photograph, the Delaware Art Museum has this very large collection of photomechanical reproductions, over 500, that Samuel Bancroft acquired. And these are all late 19th century photographs of paintings. And we have one of the beloved, and this is an example of a, a work that was photographed while Gabriel was in the process of painting it. Many elements of, of that photograph, the, uh, in the painting, are unfinished. You see an unfinished painting in this photograph. And we sent it to Tate to be on view. We didn't know who had made that photograph. It, we, the label, that the information that we gave to the Tate to put on the label was unknown photographer. And the Tate conservators in doing their x-rays and infrared imaging were able to then, when cross-referencing with Gabriel's own letters and diaries, date the photograph to 1865, and actually March 1865. They knew that then that April, he painted in this element of the beloved that was not present in the photograph. So we know the photograph was done before then. But that unknown photographer, it didn't really trouble me. And then in September, a day after the tape show closed, I wake up one morning to an email from a woman who works at the National Archives, Q, saying, I just saw the Rossetti exhibition. I saw your photograph of the beloved. We have the same photograph in our collection. It was given to us by William Michael Rossetti. And he noted that it was by James Hederley. And that is the type of research that you just don't get without putting these things on view and pushing the you know, needle forward, and she reached me in time to make that change on the label. And so now, if you go upstairs, you see that photograph. I did some research on James Hederley, so just you know, confirming that it all checks out, it really does. We're displaying that photograph with a new attribution, and to have this name, so many of the photographs that are of Rossetti's works, we 
have long been unknown. Was it James Hederley, who was the photo photographer that was coming time after time and photographing Rossetti's work? This is a new thread of research that we need to follow and, and one I look forward to doing once the show comes down. I just add to that. Same thing. I love how you tell a story. That's fascinating. <laughs> um, I love as well that both here and in Tate Britain include photographs from the Ashmolean in Oxford of Elizabeth Siddle's artworks, which is, I think is wonderful because they are amazing pieces in their own right to document some of her artworks that we don't know where the originals are. So I thought that was a really nice touch as well. Mm. Photography. Thank you. First, um, I have two, this is a two-part. First, the podcast, I have to tell you a little testimonial. I happened to be in London a year ago, um, a little art adventure, and I turned down podcasts while I was there, and I happened to listen to an episode about an exhibition at the Morris Gallery. I was going the next day. And it was so helpful and fun to hear that and to have that knowledge when I'm in there. And so you're uh, changing lives. <laughs> Thank you. And then second, I have a question for you, Sophie. The beloved, its placement mm -hmm. is just so exquisite. Could you drill down a little for the, how you made the decisions for the beloved? It's such a treasure to have it here. And the way it's presented is just impeccable. Well, thank you, Margaret. I, so Margaret's question was about the placement of the Beloved, and she was extremely complimentary about the placement of Beloved and how I came to the decision to put it where it was. Really, sometimes these decisions just get made for us because of the chronology of the show. It was going to come at about a halfway point and it felt like too important a painting to just put on a big wall. I felt it needed to have be on its own wall. And so once we started, uh, once Keith Ragone and I started working on the design of the build, we knew we wanted there to be sort of a little niche about the beloved because I, I didn't have as large a presentation of preparatory drawings as the tape had on view. And so I thought, let's feature the beloved, but what I really wanted to do differently was to have the photograph right next to the painting so that you could look at both and you could see the painting and just pivot a little to the right and see the photograph. And you probably also noticed that there is this panel there next to the painting and photograph called The Beloved Beneath the Surface. And I felt very strongly about including that material because that was research, really important, never before done research that Tate conservators Amy Griffin and Gabriella Maccaro did with Tate conservation scientist Joyce Townsend to technically and scientifically examine Rossetti's paintings in the Tate in ways they never had before because they were always on view. So when they came down for preparation for the show, they were able to x-ray them, do infrared imaging, UV imaging, some sampling analysis, and they made major discoveries about the paintings. And the Beloved was the one that I felt 
was the most earth shattering in its discoveries. And so I said, let's just put that on the wall. People in Delaware love technical art history. It's become you know, a major methodological mode of inquiry in American museums in particular to foreground that the art object itself is an archive to mine, that you can learn more about a painting and an artist just by using and looking at that painting with new technologies. And so if you look at that panel, it shows how um, the child that Gabriel first was using for the foreground figure, that there is this hazy or pentimento below the surface, that the IR and x-ray show, as I mentioned before, how he moved the eye, how he enlarged the canvas. And I find that sort of research to be the next frontier of art historical scholarship and museums, I hope, will continue not only to do this research to just learn things about a painting for a book or a catalog, but to do this research and to put it on the wall so that people who see these exhibitions can take that information home as well. Okay, um, we are very aware of time, and I know that 
I know so many of you must have burning questions. Or you know, we can continue this conversation. Um, you know, we can talk about Rossettis all day long. Let's face it, that's why we're all here. Um, so we are going to wrap it up at this uh, at this moment in time. Just a final note to say thank you so much to our listeners who will be listening to this episode. It's actually really weird to say it in person in front of people and not <laughs> on a Zoom. Yeah, not on a Zoom call. <laughs> and once again, just thank you so much for your support in you know enabling us to continue with this to continue with our research and continuing to get uh, let me try again periaphylitism out to um, generations to come and long may it continue uh, yeah thank you as well to Delaware for hosting us today yep. to the museum and to Sophie and for all of you that have come to listen we really appreciate it thank you again just to echo Alex and and Hannah, thank you everyone for your support and thank you Sophie and Delaware Art for having us here this weekend. And it's so wonderful to actually do something live with my podcast mates and not have to do it over Zoom. And lastly, I think we should thank you guys. Uh, round of applause, so please applaud yourself for being such a wonderful <laughs> audience uh, today. Thank you all for coming. This was a new experience for, I think, every single person in this room. <laughs> it was an experiment that we uh, talked about over Zoom, and I, I, think, we, I think we pulled yeah. it off. One tight wonders. One tight wonders.